It's Greater LA from KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hey there, I'm Steve Chiotakis. It's a sunny day out here in Santa Anita Park Racetrack in Arcadia, but we're not here for horse racing. We're here to see some short-legged pups with fluffy butts compete. If you are a racing corgi, you need to be at the starting line. Checked in right now. Yeah, corgis racing. If you don't know what a corgi is, well, they're those adorable dogs with the stumpy legs that Queen Elizabeth always had following her around. Remember those? Here's Dan McLemore, the co-founder and commentator of today's event. It's like Coachella kind of with cor- instead of, you know, hipsters, it's corgis. 100 corgis run in 10 heats for the Golden Trophy and all the praise that comes with finishing first. KCRW's Rebecca Ludman takes us down to the races. On this sunny morning, spectators pay $12 to enter the track, and there's more than 5,000 of them. They check out the line of vendors selling food, dog treats, and of course, corgi merch. They trickle out onto a grassy area and set out their blankets and chairs around the makeshift track. It's like a Jimmy Buffett concert for corgis. Everyone's like got their blankets and picnic lunch kind of thing going on. It's a lot of fun besides the racing. In the Corgi Nationals, the pups race 125 feet. That's about as far as running past four front yards. They aren't competitive in the same way that Greyhound racing is. Wagers aren't even allowed in corgi racing, and some of the proceeds go to a charity. Everyone's just here to have fun, even if some of the corgis may not even make it to the finish line. I believe half the fun is watching just the corgis kind of go bananas or run backwards. And And sometimes they don't run at all. There was a senior race where we opened the, the starting gate and none of them left. They all just sat in there and everyone kind of had to shoo them out and it fi- I think it took a few minutes for them to finally cross the finish line, but it was hilarious. If you care about who wins today, then you'll have your focus on Archie. You may recognize him by the distinctive patch on his harness. It says Fart Machine. Archie is the Summer Corgi Nationals champion. And he says he's back today to defend his title. His owner, Brittany Corral, says he competed for the first time in May. I thought that would be fun to get him involved in uh, because he loves running. He loves going to dog park. He just loves being active. Today, Corral hopes Archie will be able to do it all again. His biggest competition is Emmett, the former two-time champion of Corgi Nationals and the current champion of the Los Angeles Chargers halftime show, Corgi Cup. Archie doesn't appear intimidated. He's running around playing. That's why we're back today. We're going to defend his title. Win or not, he's still a champion. Corgi Nationals goes back to 2018, and it isn't the only gathering for fans of Fluffy Butts. The co-founders first started another event called SoCal Corgi Beach Day, which attracts about 15,000 dog lovers. That event dates back 10 years. It began as an attempt to socialize their pup, Mr. Pickles, after he had recovered from surgery. Dan and his wife, Kelly McLemore, were fans of wiener dog racing and thought it would be fun to bring the corgi community together for a similar racing event. Now, people come from all over the country, like Minneapolis, Wisconsin, and Oregon, to participate or even just attend the action-packed day. Here's Kelly. They say it's their bucket list to be able to come with their corgi. It just makes us feel good to 
have started something that people can just share with their family, with their pets. When the Macklemore's opened registration for today's event, they received 800 applicants for 100 spots. Contestants pay $40 that goes to a nonprofit called Queen's Best Stumpy Dog Rescue, which focuses on special needs dogs. The Macklemore's also work with them to spread the word on responsible corgi ownership. The pups are very smart and loyal, but also very active and can be mischievous. Corgis are herding dogs by nature, so they have a strong will. They're not aggressive, but they're, they're very focused, and if they're not harnessed in the right direction and left to their own doings, it could go astray real yeah. fast. Archie is last year's defending champ number nine. About five hours into the event, spectators gather at the dirt track for the finals. Archie and Emmett walk down to the starting boxes along with their eight other competitors, all wearing numbered jerseys. Everybody down there. Their owners put them in mini stalls behind gates. On your marks! Get set! The announcer drops his arm and the gates fly open. Their stumpy legs create a little cloud of dust as they head for the finish line. In real time, the race goes by in a flash. But you can see a slow-mo video of the corgis running on our website. Here it comes like a shot! Emmett gets the victory! Archie comes in sec Tony is second! What a race! The champion, grade one winner of the Corgi Winter Nationals is Emmett! Emmett is a fast pup. He is a phenomenon. The finals are who we call the Usain Bolt of Corgi Racing, Emmett. He came out of the blocks just like a laser and like probably about two, three corgis length ahead of the nearest dog, just smoked the field. Yeah, he was on a mission to get to the finish line. Yeah. Archie placed fourth. Fortunately, Archie doesn't get upset about his failures. Neither does his owner. He's still my champion. Emmett's a great, great competitor, Corgi. And although Archie didn't win this time around, he'll be back in May to compete for the Summer Corgi Nationals. For KCRW, I'm Rebecca Ludman. It's Greater LA in your ear by radio, streaming, or podcast. Thanks for coming along. Go to kcrw.com slash GLA to find it and listen anytime. Still to come, forget Vegas or Atlantic City. There's gambling of an illegal nature going on in places you would least expect, and a lot of it connected to people serving prison time, believe it or not, in Mexico. More on Casitas after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. 
Onward now with Greater L.A. from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. There is no shortage of places to legally gamble if you live in Southern California. Tribal casinos, card rooms, <laughs> a trip to Nevada. Well, no shortage of illegal venues, too, according to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, like so-called casitas, Spanish for little houses, which operate in the back rooms of stores, warehouses, or even residential homes. They can allegedly bring in tens of thousands of bucks a week for their operators, not to mention money to those who oversee and quote-unquote tax them, the Mexican mafia. They can also be the site of assaults and shootings. Matthew Ormseth is a reporter for the LA Times who wrote about the proliferation of these casitas. Hi, Matthew. Hey, thanks for having me on. You you went on a raid with the Sheriff's Department, didn't you, to, to one of these uh, casitas in, in Hawthorne. What'd you see? Myself and one of our photographers went along with the team that raided a casita inside of a yarn shop in um, unincorporated Hawthorne. And basically, um, the business was a storefront in a strip mall between a hairdressing salon and a Mexican restaurant. And um, after the deputies broke down the door, you could see it was very clearly not a yarn shop. Inside, there were um, these tables called fish tables, which are, are really the most popular game at Casitas. It looks kind of like a pool table with a screen where the felt would be. And people sit around the edge of the table manipulating um, joysticks to try to harpoon or, or catch these digital fish that are kind of flickering across the screen. So there were about three fish tables in there. Um, there was a slot machine. You know, they were assuming that some of the people inside were employees, but by the time they got in, it wasn't clear who was a patron and who was an employee, but there was about 10 people inside. Um, they looked to be from kind of all walks of life. There were a couple elderly people, some young people, some middle-aged people. No one buying yarn, I would imagine. There was no yarn to be bought, right? The, yeah, there was, there was no yarn inside, inside that store. How do you know about these casitas? Like how, well, number one, how do, how do people who uh, want to go and gamble inside one find out about it? And how do law enforcement officials find out about it? Um, so for patrons, I think uh, a lot of it is word of mouth, but there's also um, these kind of flyers or chain text messages that get sent around basically saying, come to this place, you know, maybe going through the back, make sure you're not followed. For law enforcement, I think a lot of it is just um, complaints from people who live near these establishments because they're noticing people coming and going at, you know, 2, 3 a.m., when the business that, you know, is the front for the, the gambling parlor is closed. Sometimes it takes uh, an act of violence, a shooting, a robbery to uh, clue in the authorities that there's illegal gambling going on at one of these locations. Do you have any sense of how many of these there are, these casitas? Um, I, I don't think law enforcement has a firm estimate on how many you know, there are across the Southland. I would say there's hundreds. How, how is the Mexican mafia involved in, in all this? Um, so the Mexican mafia, it's pretty small. There's only about 140 full, full-fledged full members, and most of them are in prison. They have control over street gangs in Southern California, Hispanic street gangs. And what those street gangs will do is they will find out 
all the people um, making money illegally in their territory. So whether it's drug dealers, car thieves, robbery crews, and in this case, casita operators, they'll go to those people and they'll say, hey, for the privilege of making money illegally in this neighborhood, you're gonna have to pay a tax. And they will collect that money, you know, whether it's weekly or monthly, and that will go to the Mexican mafia member who controls that gang. That's the offer you can't refuse, right? Yeah, well, I mean, there have been cases where people have kind of balked at, at paying and they're usually dealt with violently. It usually starts off kind of soft, like um, your shop gets vandalized or um, your, your car gets messed with. And then they'll come back and they'll say, hey, you know, to make this problem go away, we can reach some sort of arrangement. And usually that it gets resolved at that at that stage. Do the operators get anything out of this arrangement? They, they get some money, right? Well, they get the permission and the privilege to continue making money. Um, and there is a lot of money to be made with these places. The gang will have, will station somebody there to act as sort of a security guard to try to keep problems outside of the casita because um, both the casita operator and the mafia member who's making money off of it, they want to keep problems to a minimum. There have been violent incidents, as you, as you mentioned, um, associated with some of these casitas. You wrote about uh, one murder that happened outside of one, um, Stephanie Marie Rojas. She had spent time in prison for smuggling methamphetamine across the border and then after serving time found work at one of those casitas, right? What, what happened in her case? Um, yeah, so Stephanie Rojas was working as a cashier at a casita on uh, Whittier Boulevard and Euclid Avenue in Boyle Heights. It was next door to a bakery. It looks like she had been accused of either stealing money or helping somebody uh, rob the place. I mean, mind you, these gang members do not operate under the presumption of innocent until proven guilty. So it's, it's really unclear whether she actually did anything wrong. Uh, but, but what is clear is that they thought that she did. They got permission from the mafia member who was collecting money from this casita to kill her. And she was lured outside of the casita at around 5 a.m. And somebody shot her four times in the back of the head. Just horrible um, in so many different ways. Um, what does the sheriff department say about these things? I mean, is this, is this a growing problem? Are they playing like whack-a-mole, close one down, arrest some folks, another one pops up somewhere else? Is that how it works? And in some respects, it is that, that whack-a-mole phenomenon where you, you, you bust one, you haul off all of their equipment on flatbeds and cite people, maybe put a, a legal bookmaking case on some of them, but then it just opens up down the street. Um, I, I do think that there is a kind of a growing awareness that, that this isn't just, you know, people playing cards uh, with friends, that there's a lot of money that's being made. And with so much money at stake, the people who are benefiting from that money are willing to have people killed, have people kidnapped, have people beaten to make sure that revenue isn't jeopardized. And I think that's why local law enforcement is really treating these casitas as a, as a priority. Matthew Ormseth, a reporter for the LA Times. Matthew, thanks for coming on and, and telling us the story. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Greater LA from KCRW. Coming up, Bunsen burners, Petri dishes, the periodic table. Oh my. LA science students compete for the glory. Again, that's yours in a moment. All right, even more now of Greater L.A. from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. They're kind of like the, the New York Yankees or the Alabama Crimson Tide of student science bowls because they just know how to win over and over again. Exciting victory for some North Hollywood High School students. The Science Bowl team took home the national championship this weekend. These students are on their A game. The winners of the National Science Bowl, North Hollywood High School in the San Fernando Valley. A team of students from North Hollywood High School just won this year's National Science Bowl Championship. The victory... Yeah, and while students from NoHo High cleaned up again over the weekend, at least here in L.A., to win LADWP's perennial science event, their A team took first place, their B team took second place, and next for them is the national stage again. Part game show... Part test of knowledge and teamwork, the Science Bowl is an academic competition, and it's a rite of passage for many science-inclined kids. And today we have Team A's coach Altair Maine and Captain Richard Zhu. They're both with us to tell us about their latest win and where they are headed next. Captain, coach, how are y'all doing? Doing great. Yeah, great. It's coach, nice to be uh, on the show. Coach Maine, I... to be here. I hear, I hear something in the back. Is that like a Bunsen burner in the back? <laughs> um, actually, my classroom just has really loud ventilation because we're right under the HVAC for the whole building. <laughs> well, that's sciencey too, isn't it? Like all of that has something to do with science, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, everything does, really. <laughs> everything does. So, tell us a little bit about what happened over the weekend, the the, the Saturday competition, what it looked like, and I'm, I'm picturing something like, you know, Jeopardy or their buzzers. What, what, what's going on? You got it about right. It's it's very similar to Jeopardy. There's a buzzer system, so you'll have two teams of four students playing at a time. And there's a moderator reading questions. Um, and teams sort of race to buzz in, and then they have a couple of seconds to give an answer to some kind of science or math question. Um, the day, goodness, how many rounds did we play? I think each team played about 10 rounds. And, like, what kind of, what kind of math question? I mean, are we talking about the Pythagorean theorem. I mean, what are we? What what is out there? Are you hypothesizing things? Like, what kind of questions? Well, it, goes, it goes all over the place. Yeah. One of the fun things about Science Bowl is that the there's not very well defined boundaries insofar as what they'll ask about. Some of the questions are things the kids might have learned in middle or elementary school, and some of them are sort of graduate course material or taken from somebody's research. So the, the questions range from pretty easy to extremely hard. And uh, nobody really tells the students what they've got to know or what they've got to study. Just everything. Well, how do they? I mean, so it, given that, how do they study? How do you prep for something like that? Uh, Richard? Well, we're always practicing. Um, we put a lot of time and work um, every Thursday and Tuesday after school. We stay after school and we buzz um, all the time. Uh, and a lot of other kids um, in our team are extremely um, interested in all these different areas of science, and they can bring um, their expertise from other uh, competitions like the AMC or Math Counts. Um, and often, um, it's really a boon to get to work with all of these wonderful um, students from our high school. And just the different varieties of math, sometimes one student will know something and another won't. And it's great to have these practices where we can just communicate about all the different things that we learn. 
What was the hardest question you got, Richard? <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually the biology expert, um, but I'd say the hardest math question, um, this was maybe not the hardest theoretically, but it was the last question. We were on stage. Um, it was actually, uh, yeah, it was a math question, um, and we had to calculate, um, I, th- I believe it was the area of circle. I don't remember exactly, um, but it was extremely stressful because it was the last question. Um, if we got the question, we won which we did. Uh, if we didn't get the question, we would have moved on to a second round. Um, and so me and Bo Heng, uh, my co-captain, um, were working diligently on that last problem till the last second. <laughs> but what, what was it? It was a, it was a math question? It was, it was a related rates problem from calculus about, uh, what was it, the rate of change of uh, surface area of a sphere? Of a sphere? Pretty, pretty standard AP calculus question, but uh, the pressure of doing it uh, on stage in about three seconds would make it hard for most people. <laughs> I can't even imagine that kind of pressure. For I mean, if someone said, what's seven times eight? It would take me a second, then I, and then I'd say 55. So you see what I did there? That's not the answer. But anyway, Richard, how much time do you spend studying and working on stuff for the Science Bowl team? Because you're, you're, you're in school, right? Yeah, we're in school. Um, but whenever we can, especially after school practices, um, we, we spend several hours buzzing um, and, and practicing, really. Um, we also dedicate a lot of time, especially on weekends um, or after school, um, when we're participating in other activities like Science Olympiad. Um, and so, yeah, it's a lot of time, but really um, it makes it worth it because science is just so interesting um, with all the different ways that you can come up with math problems um, and the like. Coach Mann, I understand y'all have quite the record over at NoHo High. As I mentioned, we did a montage. Y- y'all have won a lot, haven't you? Uh, we try. What's <laughs> what's going on? Trophies. Is it the water up there in the in the San Fernando Valley? What what's going on in NoHo that that where yeah, you guys it. just keep winning? You, you've revealed our secret. It's the tap water. <laughs> <laughs> y'all have have you figured out something sciency to like to to make the brain you know work a little harder because wh- what is it you you use like what ten percent of your brain right so you no, like, use all of your brain that's a myth <laughs> maybe a question right for the science bowl I don't know it could easily be I mean we get great students so I, I I we certainly start with great raw material and then there's some some just tradition and inertia I think when when people join the team they they know about the record uh, on day one they're practicing against the previous year's team. So, you know, right when they start, they they see play at a top-tier level. And there's a lot of internal competition to make the team here that doesn't show up at uh, competition on stage. But there's a lot of kids that want to do it, and they're all smart, and they're all driven. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on. Congratulations to you here in L.A., and best of luck representing, you know, the Southland, Coach Altair Maine and Captain Richard Zhu. Good luck over in D.C. Hey, thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Next week, Mayor Karen Bass's Inside Safe program continues to ramp up as officials continue to grapple with extraordinary short- and long-term housing needs. The latest coming up next week on Greater L.A. I hope you can join us. And Inglewood Church is starting up a for-profit production studio in the hopes of bringing Hollywood in. But what about the ministry? We'll have that for you coming up next week right here on GLA. Online anytime if you have a story to share, maybe a thought to share too, kcrw.com slash greater LA. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Phil Richards, Sonia Geis, Nick Lamponi, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Stark, and Christian Bordal. 
all had hands and ears in this evening's episode. I'm Steve Chitakis. Have a great night.